Okay, well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad to be back with you this morning. Again, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 33. And I know much to everyone's excitement, we will be talking about wealth and possessions. And of all the Lord's teachings, His words on money are among His most challenging and This passage is certainly no exception. But anyway, without belaboring the point, I just want to go ahead and get straight into it. So what we'll do is we'll treat the passage itself, and then we'll circle back around to make three points of application. So very straightforward this morning. Look at verse 13. It says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. So you can imagine Jesus teaching, you can imagine him with his disciples in front of a large crowd, and then in the middle of his teaching, someone blurts out, teacher or rabbi, tell him to divide the family inheritance with me. And it's hard to determine the exact nature of the man's dispute because really so few details are given, but it appears to be just. Otherwise, why approach Jesus at all? The the man must have had some legal leverage on his side. And I believe the most plausible scenario to be that his brother had kept back the portion of the family inheritance that was rightly due him. And so thus, the man was not seeking to take from his brother that which was rightly his brother's, but he was seeking only that which was his own, the portion of of his inheritance that his father left him. So therefore, having the right on his side, he appeals to the Lord to settle his dispute. And this would have been something that was common in that day. There wasn't uh, lawyers, civil lawyers like there are in our culture. Rather, they would go to a rabbi. And a rabbi would decide the case for them. Anyway, verse 14 Responding, it says, But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So, regardless of how we reconstruct the dispute, one thing is clear, Jesus rejects the man's request. Not because he lacks the qualifications to do so, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you, but because Jesus is opposed to the greed that lays hidden in his request. The man may be in the right, but the Lord sees in his future a far greater loss than merely his inheritance. In his zeal to retain his portion of the inheritance, the man lost his sense for what really matters in life. Thus the Lord warns him, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So, inheritance or not, Whether this man receives his portion or not, 
Life is far more than merely one's possessions, the Lord tells him. The man had become so concerned with maintaining his earthly inheritance, with getting his lot, that he'd become blind to his heavenly inheritance. And that is the nature of greed. That is how greed operates. Like its close cousin jealousy, it has a totalizing effect. Greed consumes everything. It pushes out consideration of anything beyond the material, and thus the meaning of life effectively becomes the accumulation of possessions, things unseen. Heavenly riches are forgotten. Because when one is consumed by greed, all they can see, all they want are material things. And thus, they're in danger of forgetting things unseen. And the man was dangerously close to fulfilling the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So, never one to miss a teaching moment, the Lord spins a parable that further explains His words about greed. Look at verse 16. It says, And He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And He began reasoning to Himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then He said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? The Lord concludes by saying, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So notice, the Lord says, the land of a rich man was very productive. The plentiful harvest is not credited to the rich man's industry and hard work, but to the richness of the land. Because, ultimately, every beneficial thing comes from God. Good soil, temperate weather, the cooperation of animals, whatever, is, whatever else is necessary for cultiva- cultivation, all depends on God. And so the rich man's hard work is commendable, but it's not the bottom line. The bottom line is God's blessing. Yet, provided such a great surplus and generosity by God, the rich man responds with ungratitude, ingratitude and unwillingness to share what he's been given. Disregarding the commandment, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 17, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. The rich man devised a way to hoard all the surplus for himself like a gluttonous man who would rather burst than share his food, the rich man determines to tear down his old barns and build even larger ones rather than share his food with those who can barely put their food 
on the table. Thus, having secured for himself comfort and ease for many years to come, he says to himself, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Everything's set. There's nothing to worry about. I'm set for all life. All I have to do now is kick back, eat, drink, and be merry. On this, my favorite figure from, the church, from church history, Basil of Caesarea, he says, Oh, what senselessness. If you had the soul of a pig, what better news could you have given it? Are you really so animal-like, so devoid of understanding as to what is good for the soul, that you offer it foods of the flesh and serve it things that go into the, into the latrine? So the good man treats himself like an animal. Eat, drink, and be merry. You have all you need. Yet God speaks to him as a man and says, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So if the man wanted barns to store his goods in, if he wanted a place to lock away all that he's gotten, he should have stored them in the stomachs of the poor. There he would have had laid up treasures for himself in heaven. Now his life is going to be required of him. And where are his goods going to go? He was indeed rich in this life, but poorer than any man in the next life. So the Lord concludes his speech by saying, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So that's what we'll end uh, for this week. We'll pick up the rest of the passage next week. Um, but now that we've got at least a sense of where Jesus is coming from, what he's warning this man against, let's take a step back and consider what it means for us. And we'll make three points of application. And the first one is our duty to share. The first thing that we can draw from this is our duty to share. Implied in the parable, again, is that responsibility. The rich man, his goods were not his to keep as he supposed, but instead they belonged to the poor. And I know that's maybe a pretty radical thing to say, that the rich man's goods were not his to keep, but that they belonged to the poor. But I want to show you that it rests entirely on biblical grounds. The key to the Lord's parable is, again, that first line. The land of a rich man was very productive. As we've said, the plentiful harvest was not credited to the rich man's industry or hard work, but to the fruitfulness of the land and ultimately to God. The rich man's toil and labor, good though they are, accomplish nothing unless God blesses. Psalm 127 reads, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So unless it's the Lord who is doing the work, it doesn't matter how skilled or how hard these men work, the scripture says they labor in vain. And then again, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. No matter how diligent and watchful the guards are, unless the Lord is the one guarding the city, they keep awake in vain. And again, 
It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved, uh, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Again, the psalmist says, to work all day, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors is vain. He says, because why? The Lord provides for his people even while they sleep. The hard work is good, it's a necessary, but it's not the bottom line. Again, the bottom line is the Lord's blessing. And we believe those words, of course. We are not so proud and ungrateful so as to credit our own success and prosperity to our, win- our own wisdom and ingenuity. Rather, we recognize that it comes to us by the kindness and blessing of God. Because even our wisdom and ingenuity are gifts of God. We didn't get those from ourselves. The Lord gave those to us. As James says, James chapter 1, verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Again, the rich man's surplus, and indeed our surplus, comes by God's hands. We take seriously the apostles' words. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, What do you have that you did not receive what do you have that is not a gift what do you have that isn't the father's blessing in your life in truth everything we have is all received every good thing we have every good thing we enjoy are all the gifts of God and we gladly acknowledge the father's abundant provision for us we recognize that it's not by our own hand but by His. But what we often miss is how this generosity obligates us to share with the needy. And one of the most famous sermons ever preached, Jonathan Edwards, the great American preacher in the 1700s, in his sermon, The Duty of Charity to the Poor, or The Christian Duty of Charity to the Poor, he put it this way. It's a little long, but bear with me. He says, Consider that what you have is not your own. Your goods are only lent to you of God. They are only committed to you as stewards to be used for him who committed them to you. And that's what we've been saying, right? A steward has no business with his master's goods to use them any otherwise than for the benefit of his master and his family or according to his master's direction. He hath no business to use them as if he were the proprietor of them. But if instead of that he hoards up his master's goods for himself and withholds them from those of his household so that some of his family are pinched for want of food and clothing, he is therein guilty of robbing his master and embezzling his substance. Remember that all of us must give an account for our stewardship and how we have disposed of those goods which our master has put into our hands. And if we... And if when our master comes to reckon with us, it be found that we have denied some of his family their proper provision while we have hoarded up for ourselves as if we have been the proprietors of our master's goods, what account shall we give of this? He's taking what we've just said and putting it further to the next step. He says everything that we have is not our own. It's a gift of God. And if it's a gift of God, then we have the responsibility to use what God has given us for God's 
purposes. And if we don't use it for God's purposes and we hoard it up, he says we're robbing from God, we're embezzling his funds and using them for ourselves, hoarding them up for us. So essentially, the question that Edwards asks is, if our goods are not our own, and they're not, for what purpose did we receive them? Is God so unjust that he equally distributes the things necessary for day-to-day life so that we have our more than enough, but others lack even their daily bread? If God is the distributor, is he unjust in giving us what we need and others not what they need? No, rather, some are rich that they may receive the reward of generosity and faithful stewardship, while others are poor that they may receive the honor of patient endurance in their struggles. Therefore, whatever we have beyond our daily needs, God has given us for the benefit and the blessing of others, not to hoard up as the rich man did. And that's why the rich man's greed was such an offense. That's why it cost him his life. The plentiful harvest was not his to hoard, but instead for the good of all. Like a mighty river that's divided up into streams to irrigate the land, God increased him that he might increase others that he might add to them, but he damned up all his goods. Again, therefore, Jonathan Edwards goes so far as to call such greediness robbery and embezzlement. John Christosom, another great figure from church history, goes even further. He says, Perhaps this statement seems surprising to you, but do not be surprised. I shall bring you testimony from the divine scripture saying that not only one's, not only the theft of others' goods but also the failure to share one's own goods with others is theft and swindle and defraudation. So by keeping the proceeds of the harvest, by hoarding them for himself, the rich man embezzled from God and robbed his fellow man. So in the end, as the passage would lead us to consider, We are owners of nothing, and we are stewards of everything. We came into this world with nothing, and we're going to leave this world with nothing. All the possessions that we stack up, all the wealth that we accumulate for ourselves will not go with us into the next life. And therefore, it's much better to use what we've been given for the blessing and the benefit of others than to stack it up and die with it in our accounts. All things have been given to us by God, and one day He will demand a strict accounting of them. So, we have, this passage establishes the duty to share. The duty to share with others. We're not just, it's not just something good that we should do, but we have a responsibility and a necessity placed upon us. Now, The second thing um, the passage leads us to consider is, I think, the challenge to share. The challenge to share. Present in both the Lord's teaching and his parable is, as we've said, the totalizing power of greed. So the man who seeks his portion of the inheritance, the Lord says, beware. 
And he warns them again, be on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his, of his possessions. In his case, greed threatened to encompass everything. Such that the meaning of life itself was reduced to the accumulation of possessions. God and the soul, things eternal, were marginalized to the point of non-consideration. And the same is true, uh, the same holds true in the parable of the rich man. The Lord concludes the parable by saying, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Once again, the accumulation of treasure and possession excludes the possibility of being rich toward God. One cannot stack up treasure to heaven and have treasure in heaven. They are mutually exclusive. In, in another place, the Lord, uh, he makes things even more crystal clear. This is a statement found in uh, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. The Lord says, you cannot serve God and wealth. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Again, there is an absolute either-or relationship between God and wealth. The Lord says that they are both masters, and we must serve one. And both the man who sought his inheritance and the rich man who kept back his goods had chosen to serve wealth. Therefore, loving and devoted themselves to treasure, they hated and despised God. One must triumph. God and mammon cannot coexist in the heart of man. So I really think that um, the Lord's portrait of greed here helps make sense of our present situation and the particular challenge to sharing in our day and in our culture. Now, our society is a lot of good things, but frugal is not one of them. In fact, our society is principally based on consumption. It is our way of life. And this is the point in the message where I would list stats to you about how much accumulation of possession has grown in the past 50 years about outrageous credit card debt and so on and so forth, and et cetera, et cetera. But that's not really necessary. Just look around. Everything, literally everything, is a massive advertisement. The biggest conspiracy you could cook up designed to get us to buy more, to consume more, and to spend more. Our society preys on particularly the advertising uh, establishment, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, call it. Um, it preys on what First John calls the lust of the eyes, wanting us to get more and to buy more. And if you do a little research, you'll find that this trillion-dollar industry of advertising is down to a science. Many people who study the brain and who study the human person actually don't go into outright fields of science, but go into marketing. And there they use all their great insights about how the brain works, about how humans work, and they sell that information and use it for the advertisers, for the companies to get them to make iPhones as addicting as possible, 
to make ads that are as appealing as possible, all for the purpose of getting us to have more, to consume more. It's this giant project to get us to continue to buy and to have and to accumulate. And so, based on the Lord's words, it's not hard to pinpoint where our greed comes from. Materialism, the materialism that dominates our society, is the inevitable fate of a people who have banished God from their lives. Although believers still outnumber unbelievers in the United States, our way of life is largely atheistic. I want to read to you a few quotes here. This is by um, a social commentator. He says, Late modern society is principally concerned with purchasing things in ever greater abundance and ever and variety, and so has to strive to fabricate an even greater number of desires to gratify and to abolish as many limits and prohibitions upon desires as it can. Such a society is already implicitly atheist and so must slowly but relentlessly apply itself to the dissolution of transcendent values. It cannot allow ultimate goods to distract us from proximate goods. Our sacred writ is advertising. Our piety is shopping. Our highest devotion is private choice. God and the soul too often hinder the purely acquisitive longings upon which the market depends and confront us with values that stand in stark rivalry to the one true substantial value at the center of our social universe, the price tag. And there's a lot that he says there. So we're going to break it down, but I don't think it could be summed up any better. To maintain the ferocious pace of our economy, people must consume at ever-increasing rates. People have to buy more. They have to consume more to keep the machine running. And economists recognized this in the early 20th century. A marketing consultant, Victor Lebo, he captures the strategy perfectly. Again, another longer quote, but bear with me. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfactions, our ego satisfactions in consumption. The measure of social status, of social acceptance, of prestige is now to be found in our consumptive patterns, the very meaning and significance of our lives today expressed in consumptive terms. Listen, we need things to be consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced, and discarded at, ever in, at an ever-increasing pace. We need to have people eat, drink, drive, uh, dress, ride, live with ever more complicated and therefore constantly more expensive consumption. What becomes clear is that from the larger viewpoint of our economy, the total effect of the advertising and promotion and selling is to create and maintain the multiplicity and intensity of wants that are to spur the standard of living in the United States. Writing in 1955, his vision has been accomplished in 2020. The price tag is indeed the true value at the center of our society. Everything revolves around consumption, getting and having more. And so the next step in the equation, then if we need to keep people consuming at an ever-increasing rate, how do we get that to happen? Well, we have to abolish all limits and prohibitions on our desires. We have to turn loose people's desires. We have to turn loose their greed so that we can continue to maintain our pace. 
Listen to what Paul Mazur, he was a partner of the Lehman Brothers in the 1930s, said. We must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old has been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must, must overshadow his needs. So again, in order to keep the market pumping, people's desires must be unmoored and turned loose. Things like contentment, gratitude, and self-control cannot be allowed to stand in the way of the economy. And the question then becomes, well, how do we accomplish this? How do we turn people's desires loose? And the answer is, by dissolving the transcendent, by getting rid of God. Because listen, if people don't have God in their life, if they have nothing to look forward into the next life, nothing to enable them to be grateful, to give to the poor, to be generous, and all they have is this world, then materialism, greed, consumption, is the end of the chain. When a society has nothing to offer to a people beyond merely what's in front of their face, it can only offer to them more and more and more. A larger house, a greater truck, a greater this, so on and so forth. A more lavish vacation. That's all it can give you. So, God and the soul have been crowded out of people's lives because things heavenly cannot get in the way of things earthly. Thus, the overconsumption and greed that defines the modern American way of life is fundamentally secular. Indeed, materialism is uh, a secular society, is all that a secular society can give to its people. More stuff to dole the nagging anxiety of hopelessness. It's a way of life that is born and bred in the death of God. Therefore, and here's where we get back to our parable, our passage, the rich man in Jesus' parable is... America on or America is the rich man in Jesus' parable on the societal level. We are indeed rich, earthly speaking, but we are not rich toward God. Thus, the challenge, right? Everything in our culture is pushing us one way. To have more, to get more, to do everything we can to continue to consume, to add to our lives. In the biblical worldview, the scriptures go in the exact opposite of that. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We should be content with food and clothing and a shelter over our heads. Beyond that, again, our goods are given to us for the benefit of others. So there is a very definite and strong challenge that stands before us. And I'll get to some more practical things when we get to it next week about you know, what the Scripture says about how we could live this life and what it looks like. Because it is a challenge, and I don't stand before you as someone who's as generous and as frugal as I should be. Uh, There's areas where budget-wise we could do a better job in our household, and I'm convicted to do that, but we'll get to those things next week. But lastly, we want to wind down uh, where the passage addresses us with the reward of sharing. Those who pile up riches in this life have their reward, status, comfort, security, pleasure, what have you. But those who are generous and willingly 
share with the poor, they have their reward in the next life, an unfading treasure in heaven. I'm reminded of the Lord's words to Peter. It's right after the parable of the rich young ruler. He comes and he says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord says, keep the commandments. And he says, I've done that. I've kept the commandments. And the Lord says, okay, we'll go sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And it says, he went away sorrowful for he had many possessions. And then that's juxtaposed with the disciples, Peter, James, John, and the rest, who had literally left their whole life behind, their livelihood to follow Jesus. And Peter says, Lord, what about us? We've left everything. What, what's gonna, what are you going to do for us? And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much um, at this time and in the age to come eternal life. The reward of sharing is great because in doing so we make ourselves rich toward God. We turn in that which collapses with the market and turns to dust in, in time for that which is unfading and indestructible. And really, I can't think of a more tangible way to demonstrate your hope in eternal life. To be generous, to share your goods with others, you literally have to put your money where your mouth is. As the Lord says, where your treasure is, there your heart is will be also. So if we truly believe God's promise, God's promises to those who share, it will show. It will show. If we really believe we're stacking up treasure in heaven, it will show. So as we consider our duty to share with the poor, we cannot do so without remembering Jesus who shared his body and blood with us. As St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. Though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. He did not hoard His riches, but he opened up the storehouses and gave freely to poor sinners like us that we might be made rich in God and heirs of eternal life.